I want to welcome all of you to our podcast, From My Kitchen Table, which is both inspired and created by our successful and award-winning Women Create magazines. For those of you who do not know me, I am Jo Packham, a small-town homegrown girl who had no big dreams of being the creator and editor-in-chief of your magazines, Where and What Women Create, among which we have profiled over 745 women from around the world in over 265 books and magazines. I am so thankful that you are here joining us today. Our podcast, which is for and all about you, will be coming to you weekly. So please listen on your platform of choice. The guests we have are visionaries who consist of artists, designers, foodies, and entrepreneurs each taking us through the ups and the downs of living a creative life. I will be introducing you to those in our industry, some well-known and some you have never met. These women have crafted amazing works of imagination, transformed cooking and baking into an art form, built successful businesses, inspired entire communities, and each has a story to tell, a perseverance and triumph that will help each of us on our own personal journey. So welcome to From My Kitchen Table. This is the place to come together, to learn, and to share the passion, the process, the inspiration, the wisdom, and the journeys of living a creative life. I would like to start today by introducing you to our guest. She is a rock star in my um, estimation. I think I've known Deanne for really a long time, but I can't remember exactly when it all started. But let me introduce you to Deanne Fitzpatrick. She is an artist, writer, and owner at Deanne Fitzpatrick Rug Hooking Studio and www.hookingrugs.com. Deanne is renowned worldwide for her beautiful rugs and patterns. Her work is in the permanent collection of the Art Gallery of Nova Scotia and the Canadian Museum of Civilization. And she is the author of seven books. She works from her studio in downtown Amherst, Nova Scotia, where she writes and teaches on her website, hookingrugs.com and creates beauty every day. Deanne, welcome to my podcast. It is such an honor to have you here. You know, it's a big honor to be here. And I'll tell you, I wrote you a long, long time ago. And I was just, I, you know, I've been reading Where Women Create for years. I used to have to drive to Moncton to get that magazine, which is the nearest city. And um, I would go up and I'd pick up Where Women Create. And um, I would come home and I, and I wrote you a long time ago. And you responded so beautifully. Like, and I said to you at the time, Joe, I said, I can't believe you respond to everyone yourself. And you said, if someone takes the time to write to me, I think it's important to write them back. And I just thought, and I've carried that with me. Like I really try to, to you know, I, 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 we never always manage to do what we want to do, but I really do try. And I, I found that was just so respectful of the artists that you know, because you deal with so many artists and get so many requests and so many emails. It was lovely. Oh, thank you. That's where I recognize your name from then. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm not really good with faces and things, but I'm pretty good with, with names, I guess, because I see them on online or something. And then I pull up your Instagram accounts and I yeah. do all of that to see who you are. And I just feel like it is such an honor 
for any of you to write to me that the least I can do is write back and say, thank you. Right. So yeah, that's exactly what you said. And I, <laughs> I always like, I carry, I carry that with me, you know, that just, it's really important to connect when someone oh. wants to connect with you to just try to connect back a little. It's lovely. I think that's because most of us are so insecure. And um, if we, if so, if we write to somebody and they don't write back, it's like, oh my hell, I really am as bad as I thought I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not a nice feeling to sort of be at the end of nothing, you know? Once I wrote this author, like a few times, I'll sometimes send out that art letter, you know? Like, I really love your art, it's really beautiful. And I wrote this really famous author and I just said, that novel really made me think of, about uh, charm and life and it was beautiful. And she wrote me back and I thought, wow, aren't you something? You know, it was Elizabeth Hay, actually. She's a, oh. a very well-known Canadian author. And, and uh, I just thought, aren't you something? Isn't that lovely? Because a lot of times it's just, you know, it's just empty space when you send out that, I love your art letter, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people just get so busy. I I try really hard not to blame them. And not no, to me too. I agree. Right. Yeah. But it's sure. such a gift and such a nice surprise when it happens. Well, okay. So you have, I know for a fact that you have enough stories to tell and enough knowledge to share that we could do 20 podcasts <laughs> with you. <laughs> so I don't want to waste one minute of it. Um, on things that might not be of so much interest to our listeners. So let's start with how you started. Is that a good place? Yeah, it is a good place. I think, um, well, my sister had an old farmhouse. I was 16 years old when I moved to Nova Scotia uh, from Newfoundland. And my sister had an old farmhouse and she had these rugs on the floor, these hooked mats that were, you know, generations old that she'd bought at auction. And she said that she was going to um, a course with the Rug Hooking Guild of Nova Scotia to learn how to hook rugs. And I said, I'll come. And two of my other sisters came too. Came too. And we went and we... Uh, this woman, Marion Kennedy, had a little kit all prepared for me and she gave it to me and she showed me three stitches, you know, like one, two, three, the same stitch. And then she said, now do it. <laughs> it was just like that. And like, she was like my best teacher because she was about, you know, get it done. And I remember that evening I went to, had a little shop in the upstairs of this old house and I wanted to buy a little hooked rug. And she said, no, you can make it. And, uh, you know, she was just like really direct and she really had a profound influence on my life. And I, within, I had just graduated that year uh, from Acadia University and I was 24 years old. And, you know, I just say, I talked to a potter once and she said, uh, Rachel Marooney, and she said, I, when I threw my first pot, I knew that it was for me. And when I hooked my first rug, like within, within hours of I'd say we learned in the afternoon and by the evening, I knew that I would always do this. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's funny. I, you know, and I didn't expect that. That's not, I'd expect it to be a counselor or a therapist or, you know, work in an, an admin or something. I, I didn't expect that. And uh, I never had any idea what it was to be an artist. Like it was, uh, I grew up in a place where there was, 
just there was no one who made their living as an artist at that time in the community I grew up in. It was in I was totally inexperienced with that idea. I remember when I met my husband, which was just a few years prior to that, he had paintings under his couch, like this box of paintings, and he pulled it out. We were we were laying on the floor and he and I said, what's in that box? It was like a big old Kodak film box, you know? Okay. And he said, paintings. And I said, what? And he said, paintings. And he pulled them out. And they were these paintings that like um, monoprints that an artist had done years before. And I had no idea at that point what the difference was between a picture and a painting, really. And I, I at that time, I was 21, you know? So art was not something uh, that I thought about very much when I first became a rug hooker. I do have to say that it is probably the perfect um, extension of your thoughts that you would be a therapist because I think a great deal of therapy goes on in the process of teaching people how to do things with their hands and talking to them and building their confidence and working through their problems. So I think you are doing exactly what you always thought you would do you're just doing it in a different format yeah probably I am because making is really therapeutic and it's really meditative there's no doubt about it it is true so what was the next step after you did this then what happened within about nine months within about a year I guess of learning how to learning how to hook rugs I started selling a few rugs like I would sell them at a craft show or I would sell them to friends my sister god bless her she she bought a lot of them because my sister's 17 years older than me oh and she was just really good to me and um and all my sisters were good to me I have six older sisters um and then I started uh I would go to shows a little bit like craft shows and sell them I was initially selling them at a a craft gallery that took 30%. And I started like that. So it was just about selling the rugs. And then I got pregnant with my son and I decided I kind of wanted a home-based business. So I bought supplies and started selling supplies. And really soon after I began teaching people how to hook rugs in my house. So my first studio I say was in a trunk and then I graduated to an armoire. (laughs) Then I went to my living room and then somehow I, I don't know, like I wanted affirmation. So I sent off a bunch of pictures of my rugs to the Canadian Museum of Civilization. And I applied for a grant with the Canada Council for artists grants, you know, I, and I did it because I wanted affirmation. And one night my son was like in the high chair and I had like, if you ever seen me cook, like pots are boiling over and you know, there's like steam in the kitchen and, and the phone rang and it was this man and his name was Magnus Einarsson. And he said, we would like, to, this is Magnus from the Canadian Museum of Civilization. And my son immediately started screaming the pots, you know, spaghetti sticking to the pot and water boiling over. And I, and he said, I would, we'd like to buy one of your rugs and it's this rug. And I said, oh goodness, that rug is sold. Can, would you consider another? And he said, yes, we would. We like your work. And, and I just could hardly believe it. Like, you know, it was just an, an unbelievable thing to be happening to me. So uh, that was like one of the signals that I was on the right track. And then I had this other big rug that I loved. And one day the registrar, 
named Judy from the Art Gallery of Nova Scotia called and said, and I think this one happened first, actually, because I was more naive at that time. The registrar from the Art Gallery of Nova Scotia called and said, uh, based on some snapshots I had sent, that they would like to buy this particular rug that I had. And I said, uh, thank you. I love I love that rug myself. It's on my wall and I really want to keep it. It's it's, you know, it just kind of keeps me company. And I, I said, but thank you. I really appreciate it. And then I got off the phone and I didn't really understand that institutions don't generally do that that quickly or that, you know, that doesn't happen that easy, you know? And I got off the phone and I told Robert and my husband, and he said, call them back right now. Like call them back right now. That's important. You should do that. We don't need this rug. You can make another rug. So I called them back right away. And they said, okay, great, we're going to take it before the exhibition committee. And they were, she was very gracious because she understood that I didn't understand, right? right? And then within a year of that, I got a show at the Art Gallery of Nova Scotia. And probably within a year of that, I wrote a book. And in all of this time, I was building my business. But I had a great deal of, I had, a, there was a great deal of hard work and there was a great deal of good fortune and there was a great deal of support on all of those, you know, levels. With the Canada Council, um, with the money that I received from the Canada Council to, to create the show at the Art Gallery of Nova Scotia, I used that money to build a studio. And um, it was the summer kitchen on my house. And I slowly built a small business selling kits and patterns and supplies uh, based on the designs that I made. And I don't know, I'm just so, like, when I think back on it, it seems uh, such a long time ago. And, you know, I never made any money, really, for years <laughs> and years. First year in business, I spent more than I made, you know, just, uh, and I didn't really care. I would, like, I would work, I worked part-time. I worked every Monday um, as a counselor. And uh, it was my husband's day off. And I would go out to work at Mount Allison University for the day. And that sort of kept me afloat right and I just kept working away like chipping away at it and you know when you have your business at home it's kind of hard to grow it I think and then after about 14 years at home I moved to a studio downtown which was a really small space and um, I'm in that space now actually I I was here and I I moved here and the rent was $200 a month like it was just a rotten space. It had green indoor outdoor carpet, these soft walls. It was like, so I had a little money saved for over time and I renovated that. And then slowly we grew to another space and then beat down two brick walls and joined the spaces together. And I have this really beautiful space in downtown Amherst now that I have help that work with me and uh, great people. Like I have a great team that is part of there, you know, they're my community, right? Especially over the last couple of years. Over the last couple of years, it's been so important. And I have to be a little bit self-serving and a little bit greedy to tell everybody that you're going to be featured in Where Women Create yeah. so that they can actually see your beautiful space. And um, it's always such an honor for us because I know how important artist spaces are to them. It is like um, you hear it over and over and over again. It's your shelter in the storm, right? It's where you mm -hmm. go. To yeah. be creative and feel safe and needed and wanted and all those things that most artists are fairly insecure about. Artists, I think, as a group are insecure. 
So I think the fact that you are a businesswoman in addition to an artist um, puts you in two categories, which not all artists are. No, they're two very different things. I, I think one of the important things about my business is uh, I treat it like an art and you know, you know, many people who do that because you, you have the magazine, you know, the art of business, right? So I, I love that. Um, I love that I can take my space and, but also not just the space, but the ideas that I come up with and develop them and imbue them with creativity. And I really try to, to treat my business like an art project in one, on one level, but I have to look, I still have to be good with numbers, good with what's coming in, what's going out, all of that, you know, like that is not the art of business. The art of business is the creativity that you put into it. And like, I love, I, I, and I think artists generally um, do love a project, right? I, I think that's what every, every time we start something new, it's a new project. So I just think of my business like that. And uh, I try to stay creative with it and energetic and, and, um, and about the insecurity thing. I think, yes, I think I am insecure and uncertain on so many levels. And even though uh, I've had good fortune and I've worked hard, I think, yes, that I think one of the things that happens is that I'm, all, I'm always with creativity and with projects and with ideas, you're always thinking, you know? And if you're always thinking, uh, there's doubts, right? Uh, always <laughs> a natural part of thinking. And Angela, who works with me, um, she's stronger, you know, about that. Like she's, she's the manager of the studio. And I would say she does a lot of creative direction in the studio. And, and sometimes I just say, I just need a session. You know, I just need you to talk me through this, that maybe this is not the right direction or, you know. I just, sometimes I just need that. Yeah. So I, I do settle, see that in myself. I think you're very fortunate to have someone like that because we've all wished at one time or another, we had a business mind that we could bounce everything off of because I think my experience with artists is they all have a million ideas. They're pretty convinced that they're all really good ideas and they're more afraid of not doing them than they are of doing them right? Because they're afraid they're going to miss out on a really good idea or somebody else is going to do it first, or this is going to be the big one, right? Yeah. And they don't think it through, which is why your business sense and, and having somebody to bounce it off of is really nice. So can we talk about business just for a second? Sure. I, I don't want to talk about it for a really long time because I am absolutely mesmerized and inspired by all of your inspiration and creativity. And that's what I think is your main focus. But I think people are really interested, regardless of whether they're rug hookers or they make projects out of ribbon, I don't care what it is. Mm -hmm. They're always, the questions they ask themselves are, you know, how do you find your suppliers? How many uh, new kits do you decide to come out with a quarter or a year? How do you get all those supplies ready to go? Those kinds of, I mean, I have, I have consider myself not only a publisher, but an expert at assembly line work because I have worked on, we've produced lots and lots of kits. I, I got really crazy one time and produced a line of hand decorated shortbread cookies 
and I got so that I could spray paint with a spray gun 2,000 cookies in three hours. Oh my goodness. I mean, it was the craziest damn thing, right? It's like, what in the hell am I thinking? So, but, but that's where you go on these tracks. And I didn't have anyone to talk to. So I just thought, you know, well, this is a really good idea. So if you would kind of, you know, walk the audience through a very brief version of how you do that, I think it would be infinitely valuable to them because they need they need help they need somebody and they don't always have somebody yeah okay so a long time ago maybe about 10 years ago I sort of decided that my main job was to hook rugs and to write because those were the two things that sort of those were the foundation of my business right so that's my main job in the studio and we have a lineup and I also decided a longer time ago than that, that I could either continue to work part-time and keep making my rugs, or I could create a job for myself that was through my studio. And that's when I decided to start making kits. I just thought, well, I could have a part-time job outside my, my art life, or I could have a part-time job inside my art life. So mm-hmm. I came up with six kit designs and you know, mostly at that time, I made them all myself, I cut the wool, I packaged them. And then, you know, slowly over time, a couple of neighbors up the road started working for me a couple of hours a week. And this other woman would work for me um, doing the shipping a couple, like maybe all together, it was probably 15 hours a week. And so how I developed my business was Every time I found that I didn't like doing something, that was the first thing I would get help to do. So the very first thing I actually got help to do was bookkeeping, because that was like, I always tried to look at my strengths. And my sister had told me this. She said, if you can find someone else, like even in work, if you can teach someone else to do it, because she she worked in um in the in banking, if you can teach someone else to do it, then you have more time to do what you're good at and so I always sort of took that um way so now like with our kits I come up with the original design and I listen we do a Facebook live every Thursday and we actually do a live every Thursday because we do it on our website and we share it on Facebook and YouTube Um, we do it every Thursday at two Atlantic time and I really now for the last couple of years really listen to what the people who are watching that tell me you know, in the comments. And so if they love something now, I decide to issue it as a kit. And making a kit is a complex process because you have to dye the wool, you have to draw the pattern, you have to get the hook. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like making the rug, right, in, in a way. Um, so I, I wanted to find something that would sustain my art practice. And the kits are how I developed it. And so I think, if, and, and we decide, I decided to manufacture those myself. Now I know other people, when they uh, decide to manufacture something based on their art, they, um, they hire it out. So there's other, there's other ways of doing it. So we have about eight to 12 employees, depending on the time that work part-time. And uh, we're in a community where uh, a lot of our population is 
older, um, our senior citizens, and many of them retire quite young. And so, you know, amongst our team, we have a uh, we have people who are retired from healthcare, from banking, from uh, education, and they come in two or three days a week and they help dye the wool and make the kits. And and for a long time, I never had any full time employees because the I I think. I think we go back to the insecurity. I was unsure. I didn't want anyone relying on me. You know, I was afraid of that. So a part-time person who had a pension was a good fit for me, right? And now we have, we still only have three full-time employees. But for me, growing the business of this really meant getting help. That is the thing that I needed. And I needed help with the things that I wasn't good at. But then I also needed help as time went on with the things that I didn't know how to do with the things that I needed some people who were better at better than me at certain things. And so, you know, like Joe, who works with me, is a way better, better administrator than I am, way better at keeping track of inventory, you know, way pickier about certain things and and uh, and I need that, you know, I, so there's a balance there. You need to teach people what you know so that you can free your own self up to grow. And then you need to uh, bring people in who are better than you at certain things. That's kind of how it worked for me. Does that answer your question? I hope yes, so. Yes, no, it does. And I think you're very wise. I don't know if you realize how wise you really are. You really are... Um, I mean, it's one thing to be smart. I mean, a lot of us are smart in a lot of categories, but the wisdom to realize that one, because artists always say, I can't afford to hire mm -hmm. somebody new, which none of us can. So you are in the beginning, right? When yeah. we're starting. So you, so you found a way to make it work and then to have the confidence to trust someone to do something that you realize that you're not, that is not your best trait. Yeah. And a lot of people are really afraid to do that. They're afraid to let go. So I think to hear you say that probably has more of an impact than you realize because it, it really is very wise and has proven to be successful for you. So I think that's, um, thank you. Thank you for answering those questions. Thank you for doing that. Okay, so now let's get to inspiration and creativity. I mean, because that's, that's the feeling that I get from you when I'm on your website. And um, I, I, maybe this is a good time. I, I am not a rug hooker. I will admit that I have rug hooked. I mean, in the seventies, probably right. Was what I did. Yeah. I mean, cause that's when it was so popular and it was, and I bought, I bought pre-cut yarns like your kits. I bought everything yeah. pre-done so I didn't have to design it. But um, so I, but I love your website and I love your newsletter because it does talk about rug hooking, of course, but it has enough content and enough inspiration that I am absolutely mesmerized by it. And we will um, put it on um, your podcast page so that Thank everybody you. can link into it. But if you wouldn't mind, would you mind telling the audience a little bit about your newsletter and how that whole thing started and where you get your inspiration to write your lovely posts. Yeah. Cause don't you, po don't you send a newsletter like every other day? 
uh, twice a week, usually twice a week. And then you get the, if you don't open it, it comes again. But yeah, it's, it's twice a week, sometimes three. If we're doing a promotion, you might get four in a row and you'll hate me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I never hate you. No, I love four it. days and unsubscribe, which I totally understand because I've done it myself. But it, what we find is that it's really important for our business to sort of um, to do that. So anyway, besides that, so I have two newsletters. One's called Seeking Inspiration that we send out every Tuesday, and I'm just um, I'm just always looking for ideas and beauty to pop in that newsletter and I just keep my phone with me when I can I don't have my phone with me all the time I'll just take a snapshot and Angela will say I need something for seeking inspiration Deanne and I'll go through what I saw that week and I'll send her three or four pictures and we'll talk about what inspired me and you know like I just put Jen Hewitt's book in today's newsletter about um uh, the long thread and you know just if I see something that I think this is of interest to people I'll I'll pop it in the newsletter and I'll, and I'll share it with them. And I, I do like that, but I do like that newsletter, but the one I really love is the Sunday letter. And that started about three years ago. I like to write, you know, I do. And every Sunday morning I would get up and I would write a letter and I would send it off. And somewhere along the way, I learned that rug hooking was more about making rugs. And I think one, it was over a conversation with my friend, Susan Black, who's also an artist and who has a, who writes about creativity as well. She's a really good artist from Nova Scotia. And she said, I think you're doing more than making rugs. And I said, what do you mean? Like, look, I'm making rugs. And she said, <laughs> no, Deanne, you're, you're doing something else. And I started to learn that from people that I, I was trying, I, I really wanted to uh, I really knew that creating and making changed my life. And I wanted, I knew that it could do that for other people too. I, I really believe that it can, that, that making can really help people um, think about themselves, see the world differently. You know, I just, I just know that. So I came up with this idea of create beauty every day and together different people had an influence on it. Susan, uh, I uh, had an influence on it. My niece, Bridget, who we, you know, we were jotting on a cot on a, not a, a luncheon napkin. And, um, and I came up with this idea of create beauty every day. So I started writing a lot about art, life and creativity. And I wrote a book a few years ago called uh, Inspired Rug Cooking. And it was a lot of reflection, a lot of reflective writing. And so I started doing that and sending that out every Sunday. And it's built such a great following. And so even now when I send four emails in a row about a sale or a new course or something that we're having, people stay because they want the Sunday letter, right? <laughs> and in the Sunday letter, I might like in the last Sunday letter, I talked about, um, it was raining really hard and I wrote about a flood in our basement when we were children and about what it means, you know, when heavy rains come. And there's always a metaphor for life and how rains come and they recede. And I think about life a lot. I, I'm very, I don't know, like I'm not a philosopher, but if I am, it's in a folksy way, right? But I think a lot about life and I think a lot about community. I think a lot about tradition. I think a lot about faith. And these are the things, and I think a lot about art. And these are the things and relationships. I love watching relationships, people's relationships with themselves and with each other. You know, that's, that's my thing. I love that. 
And of course, when you make all the time, uh, you know, like when you're lost in a layout of your magazine, you're really focused on that, but there's all kinds of things that you're thinking, right? right. And so the Sunday letter lets me think those things and I get to share them uh, with other people. And then of course the response became beautiful and I get letters every Sunday from people who it hits something with them. And, you know, my, my mother-in-law always used to say to me, like she, she used to say, we are here to be good to each other. And oh, so nice. I just feel like in the Sunday letter, I just want to remind people of that, that that is one of the reasons why we are here. And, and people need reminding of that sometimes because they're not always kind. I don't think they mean to be unkind sometimes. It just is the way it comes across. Um, it, it happens to all of us. And most of the time we're extremely regretful and, of you know, course. try to be better. Right. And so I think that's why your Sunday morning newsletter, I have to admit, I have a really, I, I think I have a handicap. Uh, well, I know I have a handicap. It's hard to admit sometimes, but it has to do with numbers and dates and I can't see them. They thought I was dyslexic for a really long time, but they just don't register. So I never know what day anything comes. <laughs> it's just like, I know I can't remember my kids' birthdays. I can't remember anything with a date in it or anything that's associated with it. So I had no idea it came on Sunday, but I really love the fact even more that it comes on Sunday, right? Because it's probably why I read it every single time because it's Sunday, right? And I'm not involved in another project as much. Yeah, we have a little time sometimes on Sunday mornings. It's just, it just, it wasn't a chosen day. It just happened that that's when I had, that's when I started thinking about it. See, years ago, I used to blog like, and I never had a proper blog. I just used to blog on my website. Like I never under, I never knew. And I built a nice relationship with people in the blogging. And then I, then I started building my newsletter list and I thought, gee, it would really make sense to send out my blog as a newsletter. Like people liked reading it before, maybe they'll like reading it again, but I have to say they're much better now than the, than they, than those early <laughs> blogs. And a lot of, a lot of times I write the same thing, you know, like it's, it's about this, it's about the same ideas. I think as people, we have that, we have that, that beauty that we're interested in and that, that idea that we're interested in. And we just keep exploring it over and over again in different ways. Oh, I agree with that. And it's amazing how you can take one subject. I had an English professor once who made us take one subject and we had to write about it. I think it was, I don't remember exactly, but at least a dozen ways, right? That we had to write about the one subject from a dozen different perspectives in a dozen different ways. Oh. And it was really telling about what, how many ways you can approach the same experience or the same love or whatever it is. And um, it and people never tire of it. I I haven't even noticed, you know, I mean, that I do the same thing when I write my newsletter. Sometimes mm -hmm. I think, did I write about this before? And then <laughs> no. I have to go back and check everything, right? <laughs> I do know. So, okay, so now we know how you're inspired by your newsletter. Tell us, tell the listeners what inspires the designs on your rugs. I walk every day. So that definitely has an influence on it. I would say life around me. Um, 
nature for sure. Um, but just in my walks, I see like patterns on the road or patterns in the plants or how the plant changes from season to season. I do a lot of landscape, uh, hooking a lot of landscape. Um, for years, I did a lot of people rugs. I had, I would do like portraiture in a certain, like I have my own style with that. And a lot of times it was looking at how people relate it to each other. And that still inspires me the way people treat each other. Um, right now I'm, I'm watching birds a lot and I'm talking to the birds in the morning a little bit. Like I don't have big conversations with them. <laughs> I do have little conversations with them. And uh, so birds are really, and that's on my walk, like listening to them, hearing them, watching them, you know, and, and um, other artists, like I look at the work of painters and how, how beautiful they, how beautifully they paint. And I think what, how can I, how can I translate not that, not that image, but maybe that paint stroke into wool. Um, I'm always, and writers, writers inspire me. The poet Alden Nolan, just so beautiful. And it's interesting because the painters that inspire me probably paint in, you know, high realism, like uh, their Canadian painters, like um, Christopher Pratt or Alex Colville, that I, I love their work, but I couldn't, I mean, my work doesn't look like that or feel like that, but um it is certainly, you know, it's always influenced by, that influences, um, sometimes influence is hard to, hard to track, you know, because you, you, by the time it comes through you, it's so very different than, yeah, than what it started it's out. Like, it's, what it's, like, it's like storytelling, you know, because if we're all in a room and we're all telling the same story, the story is very different sometimes from one person yes. to the other. And I think inspiration is the same thing. Just like you say, it takes, sometimes it takes a while to filter through. Sometimes yep. you and I can look at the same and talk to the same bird and yep. see and hear totally different things, right? Yes. And I think that's so interesting. So, so tell us how you come out with so many kits a year, but so how do you, do you just, do you have a series of rugs that you're working on at the same time when you get a new inspiration? Do you start a new rug or do you start a rug and finish it before you start a new one? I mean, how does that whole process work? Yeah, I usually have two on the go at the one time. I have one at my house at home so that I always have like, I feel like rug hooking or art is like a place to go, right? So I always have one on at home and I have one on here in the, in the business studio. Um, so I always have pretty much always have two and as for kits like I've never been I really should be disciplined and say we have a fall collection and a spring collection but because I'm an artist I don't have the, I just always follow the art and so it's sort of like oh this is really great people will love this I think or I love this and I want it to be a kit, or sometimes it's, I love this and I can't make it a kit, you know? So right, right. I really like, we definitely should from a business perspective, have a new kit every four weeks. We don't, <laughs> just, we just kind of follow the inspiration and the excitement. <laughs> like oh, when I hear artists say, I'm releasing this collection or releasing that collection, I think, oh, you're smart and that's good. And I should be doing that. But you know, you just kind of, I just kind of feel like I, I'm just kind of 
or grow organically and roll with things organically and when the right thing arises or sometimes after I've lived with something for six months I think I think I'm ready to let that go and right now I'm working for a sh I'm having a show and every once in a while I get this desire to do a collection so I talk to a local art gallery um, like a a private art gallery and we're going to do a show in April and I've been working on this series like of, of uh, kind of doves in the sky but the doves are kind of like clouds and oh. so every one of this series has doves in the sky and it's going to be a really beautiful collection of rugs and I revisit things I I go back to uh like flat top houses, salt box houses that I knew when I grew up. And then I come back at them in a different way. Sometimes after 10 years or 15 years, you know, I think we're all, I think most many artists and, you know, you can't, you can't speak for everyone ever, but I think many of us are exploring belonging. And, and I think that comes up in my work a lot. So I, I do right now I'm working on a series, but sometimes I go like from I'll be working on a horse rug and I'll be working on a house rug and I'll be working on a, uh, an abstract design, you know, right after that. And there's, and that can go on for months like that. And then about once every two years, I'll create a collection that sort of belong together somehow. You prefer making one size rug over another? I mean, I can see in your background that the listeners can't see this, but in mm. the background behind you, there's a very large rug and then there's a yeah. smaller rug so do you prefer one size over the other I find that after I work on a big one uh, like if I work big for a while then I want to go small for a while but generally I kind of like like a 30 by 30 or 30 by 34 or 30 by um, 20 you know that's kind of the size that I I kind of gravitate towards uh, sometimes I'm very, I really want to do squares and I, and you know, I'll, I'll hook squares for ages. I also do these things, I call them tiny landscapes and they're eight inches by eight inches. Oh and God. I'll do like 36 of them and hang them together. And um, I love those too. So I don't, I don't think I have a preference. I'll have a preference for a time and then go back to it. That's sort of what happens. So when you, I'm certain that in your studio, you have an enormous collection of yarns in yeah. every color. Is it always the same weight or no, do you use different weights? No. When I first started hooking, I used all recycled cloth and then recycled cloth became almost impossible to find because people weren't wearing wool anymore. So I always use wool or silk or blends of wool and silk and sometimes maybe a little bit of linen and I hook mostly on linen but sometimes on jute or burlap and I use every different weight and that's what allows me to have a lot of interest like I'll use everything from a sock yarn to a super, super chunky merino to wool cloth in the same piece so there could be like in this piece behind me there might be 80 different yarns oh my gosh stuff together yeah and then sometimes we'll have a, like the same yarn dyed in five different shades you know um it just uh, I am always, and that's something I'm always looking for. And I think it's why I moved away from just working with wool cloth because wool cloth, 
you know, there are a few different textures, but it's, they're not very accessible. They're, they're hard to find. And with the, with the growth of knitting over the last few years, yarns became so accessible. And I could find so many from like, you know, boucles to super chunky to Icelandic to, you know, thin and thick and thin together slub, we call it. And it just allowed me to be more expressive, right? It was just like access to new paints, right? Well, and I'm like, I'm certain in this thousand different skeins of yarn, you have hundreds and hundreds of different colors. But do you ever find when you're working on a piece that regardless of how many colors of green you have, you don't have the exact right green for this particular piece? <laughs> no, I know I do. <laughs> I do. And it, I just like, I can hardly believe it because I have access to so many. Right. So then we'll sometimes I'll, I'll uh, work with one of the dyers who works with me to come up with something or I'll compromise, which is okay. You know, that's like, art's always like, you're always problem solving and you're always making little compromises, but yeah. So yeah, I do. Unbelievably drives me crazy. Yeah. It's when we're doing layout and there's, a million colors on the color wheel and you're going through all of them and everybody's saying, Joe, you've got to pick the color right now. And I, I can't find the right color. They're just the right color. It's just the right shade. Yeah, I know. I so know. I'm going to replay that little segment of what you just said over and over again. Yeah, so you're not what, alone. Right? Because no. you have to be, some people just don't see color the same way. Or don't feel the importance of color. Now, most artists do. Yeah, I will yeah. say as a whole, most artists are color driven. But even with them, sometimes they they are always muted tones or always bright tones or always, you know, whatever yeah. it is. So they're not really as involved with color as when you're doing something, when you're creating, like with your rugs, I've seen very different um, approaches to color kinds of things and yes. things that you do. Do you have a, your, so your favorite subject right now is, is, is it always landscapes or is it, is that no, just? No, it's not always. Sometimes it's abstract. Lately it's been landscapes, um, but sometimes it's abstract. Sometimes it's floral. Uh, I went through a, I went through a series of kitchen flowers last year that I really loved right now. Um, the other thing I like to do is I can't draw animals very well. So I like to take pictures of animals when I see them and um, make templates. And so I'll, I'll do like, uh, so I recently visited this island called Sable Island and I took pictures of the horses. It's an island off the coast of Nova Scotia. It's a national park and very few people ever get to go there. And so I was lucky enough to get to go and I took pictures of the horses. So I, then I'll make a template of the horse and I'll use the template to, um, almost like a stencil. And so they're kind of semi-abstract with stencil. I've done that with moose a lot. Moose figure have figured big in my rugs because um, moose was a, I lived in Newfoundland. It's a very big part of my childhood. Uh, seeing moose, you know, um, being careful of moose on the road, running into a moose out for a hike, you know, when I was a little bit older. Um, so, and, and sometimes these animals become symbols for me, like moose for me is a symbol of my, of my parents and, uh, you know, oh. I have one rug where they're, it's called love is, uh, love is kind, facing each other. And, and so, yeah, I, I have a lot of diversity, I would say in my subject matter. Um, I have about eight different subjects that I sort of go back and forth on. 
so I, 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 I'm fascinated by the business aspect of what you do. So I hate to keep going back to that. That's okay. It's, interesting. What, uh, it's just the logistics of what you do is so phenomenal to me when you put your kits together of all these colors. So when you put together a kit, like no. if you're, if you're putting together a moose kit or something, and when you created it, it had 80 colors in it. Yeah. Do you limit the number of colors in the kit? Well, once a year, we don't. We, we teach, I teach a lot online. So we have a lot of online courses. And once a year, we do our winter online course. And if this small, like this year, it was a 14 by 14 inch rug and it had 72 different weights and colors in it. And we make the kit almost exactly as I made it. But we can only do that once a year. The rest of the time, we approximate. So we might have, you know, 30 colors in a kit or 28 or, you know, so, uh, but we try to make it as, as much like the original image as we can, but maybe like if I have two shades that are, that are almost the same, we'll use one shade that, so we have to do that. Um, the, I just wanted to, to go back to the business of it. I just wanted to say one of the things that I learned a long time ago was the importance of different products and different streams of revenue. So in our business, we have our retail space that brings people in. Like we have people come from all over North America to visit the studio. We had in-studio workshops, which of course we haven't done for two years. We have online courses. We have patterns for people who are finished with kits. We have kits and then we have supplies. So if someone I think wants to make a business work, it's really important to have those different streams of revenue. And then of course, if you're an artist that want to make, that wants to make things work, I think that you have to make sure that you feel good about each of those streams, that there's something like, I love to teach. I, I love to see people connect. I love to see someone go from making a six by six inch kit to a bigger kit to making their own designs. Like we have a design school that we teach people how to make their own designs. I, I, and then, you know, maybe three years later, they have a show or something of their rugs. Like I like to see that, that I think that is serving. That's one of I'm, I'm serving my the reason why I'm here, you know, when I see people grow and develop like that. So um, I just think from a business perspective, it is important to have different then we you know, we also have a line of like, we have a little line of create beauty everyday jewelry, like it's just a small thing. But it's something we work with a local pewter, uh, pewter company to make that for us like we just I try to have different and and sometimes you can get dis distracted and some things really aren't, you know, like, I don't know, like, I listen to a lot of podcasts and listen to a lot of other artists talk and I think, oh, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. But it's really important to filter your ideas, to not jump on everything and just to find out what are the ones that suit you, you know, like what are the ones that really work with you and your soul, your art soul, your little art soul is the most important thing <laughs> in an art related business. It really is because if it relates to you and you're passionate about it, it's very easy to sell. If mm. you're not passionate about something, you almost apologize before you introduce it. <laughs> yes, it's like, 
Yes, I'm not good. really crazy about this part of what we do, but um, it is here and you might really enjoy it, right? <laughs> which is not good. In, no. From a sales perspective, that's not <laughs> the best way to approach success. But no. um, so I'm interested, like, uh, okay, so I said in our podcast, this is my 44th year in your podcast. This is my 44th year in the industry. So yeah. I have seen techniques ebb and flow. Yeah. Correct. Now, they will, they always stay at one, but I've seen macrame when everything, I was there when they started, I was there in the 60s when they started doing macrame hangers to hang their um, plants in, which is why they accredit the macrame industry for exploding the way it did because it gave people a creative outlet for something that plants were really big in those days, indoor plants. They were yeah. bringing plants inside. So people wanted different ways to display them. So somebody developed macrame and it made a lot of people really, really a lot of money. And then it just went away. Yeah. And it was gone. And now these young kids are doing macrame. Some of it looks exactly the same. Some of it is very different. These big installations that they're doing, I have to laugh. I went to a an indie craft show, I don't know, four or five years ago. And there was a booth doing macrame and a booth doing tie-dye t-shirts. And I walked up and the cute little girl that, and she was young, the cute, she was still, I offered to feature in the magazine and she said, but my studio is my mother's living room because I still live at home. <laughs> so I'm like, so yeah, but she said, I think tie-dye is going to be really, really popular. You know, I invented it. <laughs> I said, you did? You've never seen it before? She said, no, it's totally new. It's something that I created. I think I'm going to be famous for it someday. <laughs> well, she didn't know. She didn't know the history of it. None. Well, and had never done a research. She was probably had seen it someplace. It's stuck in the back of her mind. She couldn't remember. So has rug hooking ebb and flowed like that? Or has it stayed steadier? No, it's ebb and flowed. It's an interesting story. Like I learned how, my mother knew how to hook rugs. When I learned how to hook rugs, uh, my mother was oh, 65, something like that. And she told me, and so when I was starting to hook rugs, my father, my mother, all my aunts said, oh, my grand, well, your, your grandmother used to do this, right? So my, both my grandmothers hooked rugs. They actually took a piece of charred wood from the fire and drew on burlap bags, right? And that the feed came in and then they cut up old clothes and there was always a mat in the kitchen in both my parents' home growing up. There was, I only knew one woman who did it when I was a child in Newfoundland in the 70s. In the 70s in Newfoundland, it was, you know, if you could find it in plastic, please get rid of it in wood. Like, you know, it was like, we were out, it was out with the old and in with the new in, in our household and in our community. So um, that was it. I knew one woman who did it, my friend's mother. And then I never saw it again until, you know, I was 16 and in my sister's house. And at that time, in um, I think in the in the eighties, in the late seventies and the early eighties. So rug hooking was really predominant in the way that I do it, like cutting up cloth or using yarns and hand dyeing them onto either burlap or linen. That was really popular uh, through the late eighteen hundreds 
until uh, the 1950s. There were large businesses that sold it and then it died. And then in the 70s, there was a, a woman named Doris Eaton and she was one of the founding members of the Rug Hooking Guild of Nova Scotia. And there was a woman in the States called Joan Moshimer who was from uh, Maine. And, uh, and there were some other pockets and people would hook, hook rugs and they sort of started to modernize it a bit and doing a kind of a traditional style of rug hooking where they would buy a lot of times would buy new cloth cut it into strips so there's a there's a and there's also on the side on the edges of these there were uh, a lot of cottage industries like the Grenfell Industries in Newfoundland and then there was one in uh, Quebec and um, there were some other there were some other small small ones as well. I believe there was one in Vermont. I'm not sure about that, but um, that would make hooked rugs and sell them. Oh, and then there was the Shetta Camp uh, in Cape Breton, of course, that's one of the most famous ones. And so there's there, so that sort of that, uh, the Shetta Camp, the, those things were happening in the twenties and thirties as well. And they did keep going throughout this whole time, but in a low profile. Um, slowly over time, uh, I think with, uh, you know, I would have to say um, the guilds, the different guilds in different communities contributed a lot to that. Um, and the whole idea of grassroots people teaching people because rug hooking is only one stitch, right? That's one, I mean, there are other stitches you can learn, but there with one stitch, you can make anything pretty much. So um, the whole idea of grassroots people teaching people, I would say it's grown again a lot in, in the 2000s. However, it still, it still it is not a craft that has seen the resurgence of quilting or even, even say Punch Needle had a huge uh, renewal on Instagram over the last few years or Macrame has had a huge renewal. I have never really seen that in rug hooking. Uh, I don't know if you have, um, I'd be interested to know, but it's, it's, it's still a craft that um, it's never been uh, since the forties or fifties. It's, I don't think it's ever been become part of the popular, uh, a popular movement. Does that sound right? It does sound right to me, but it, but it also, so that was, I guess, my, the thought in my mind, and therefore the question is, but there are enough people that it does sustain an industry. Definitely. Yes, there is. There's enough people and most of our stores and businesses and uh, in the rug hooking market, there's a rug hooking magazine out of, out of, um, of Pencil, uh, Pennsylvania, I believe. Um, most, uh, but most of our uh, businesses and uh, uh, like pattern makers are teachers who would have small studios in their home or do you know what I mean? More, more like that. Or we'd have um, uh, perhaps they, they just teach and they would go to shows. So we, we like, there aren't big rug hooking stores everywhere. There are some, but they're not everywhere, I would say. Does that make sense? Yeah, oh, exactly. It's like knitting. Knitting was so big for so long. Yes. And then all of a sudden it just died. Right. I mean, yeah. the knitting stores went away and the yarn manufacturers. I mean, when we used to go to CHA, it used to be that there were 
yarn manufacturers everywhere. And then for a while, they weren't anywhere. Maybe, yes. maybe a couple, right? Yeah. But, and I think it's, um, I know in the industries that because the magazines represent so many industries, different types of art, art and mediums and techniques that everybody seems to be, especially now, and maybe it's just because I've noticed it more, but people seem to be trying to find a way to make their particular industry more popular with, with mm -hmm. like macrame. And some of these, I think some of these, and I'm so sorry, I can't remember the names. We've actually featured some of them in the magazine, but some of these young women who are doing these huge installations with a form of latch hooking, rug hooking. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, they use lots of different stitches, but it's still basically what you create and the things they're making are incredible and the amounts of yarn they use must be staggering yeah because they're, they're so large mm -hmm. i love watching that like i love how some people are making big installations and they're using weaving and hooking and felting and they you know they're very inventive i'd have to say yeah i i do i watch some and i i uh keep my eyes keep my eyes open and i i like seeing the resurgence of all these different crafts but, you know, the thing is about a resurgence is it's like the story that you once told, I was listening to you, and you once told a story about the cross-stitch market and how, you know, you had built a huge pattern business. And uh, in a way, it's okay to just keep doing what you do and never experience that huge, enormous research. You know what I mean? It's okay. And because I think to myself, well, what what would happen if rug hooking just bloomed in a wild and crazy way like you can't help but think about it you know if everyone in on instagram suddenly wanted to know what rug hooking was like not punch needle but this you know style of rug hooking what would that feel like and there's something beautiful about just and i have to remind myself about that time and time again there's something beautiful about just doing what you do and putting your head down over your frame and just doing it and whatever and and about just making that one thing you know that focusing on that one rug that you're focused on because it doesn't really matter if it ever experiences because i've never seen it like experience that enormous resurgence where everybody knows about it you know like i you could almost ask anyone today and they know what punch needle is or they know what um uh, even weaving has experienced, you know, right. a beautiful resurgence. Um, and I, I just accept that that might be for another generation and that <laughs> will be a beautiful thing. And that's okay with me. And I think personally, as long as it's sustainable and there are enough, if you have a business at it, and as long as there are enough who have your passion, it's really a nice thing and a gift that not everyone is doing it because it's, 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 it's more special. It's rare. It's, it's, a uh, it's delightful to see instead of going on Instagram and truly, I mean, we used to call it mending in the old days, but slow yeah. stitching has taken over everything. And 
I just get tired of seeing the same thing over and over and over again. So I think it's nice. Like I said, as long as it's sustainable and yeah. you create a nice life for yourself, that yeah. it isn't a huge trend. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you trend. It doesn't <laughs> matter if it ever goes viral. You know, like I, I, like I, I just, I laugh when I do my lives sometimes because I'll stand on a ladder to hang a rug. And I said, if I fall off the ladder, this is the one that will go viral. Right? <laughs> You know, I don't like we used to want that. Uh, now it doesn't. I really I want to make beautiful rugs that are this is one of my I'm not just making this up in the moment. This is something I say over and over again, but I want to make beautiful rugs that are unmistakably art and I want to help other people do that. And when I tell you that I feel it, you know, I feel it from my heart up through my face. And that is what I want. That's what well, I want. Well, I think you're extremely successful at it. And I think that's why people are so mesmerized by everything you touch, your rugs, your newsletters, your very personality is, is warm and friendly and um, special. I mean, it's, you know, some of these artists, there's a whole group of them and they're all exactly the same. They dress the same, they talk the same, they look the same, they make the same ideas. It's like, okay. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, repeat. And, um, but so I think that's why you are such a rare gift to all of us, whether we're rug hookers or not. I sincerely honor, am honored by the fact that you're here, that you've taken part in this, that I can say, that I know you. Um, I hope we get to be friends. I hope we do too. I, I feel like I know you too. And it's lovely. Yeah. Well, you're very sweet. Um, this is the part I hate most on the podcasts or the makers moments that we do. And that's when we come to an end because I really could do this all afternoon. It would make me very, very happy to talk to you and and learn from you and share with you and but all good things must come to an end for a minute and so but there are two things Deanne that I do at the end of every podcast and the first is if you would share a secret with our listeners that maybe most people don't know about you or your life or your art anything okay well I thought about that because I knew you're going to ask it because I listen to your podcast and I really enjoy it while I'm cooking so and I, uh, I'm a, I, one of my first jobs, I've always, before I was a, a rug hooker, I had a little entrepreneurial adventure and I was a Lebanese cook at a <laughs> farmer's market. <laughs> you were. <laughs> yeah. My husband was Lebanese and I was dating him at the time. I, his mother had a cookbook. So there was a farmer's market in Amherst and I, I had no job and no money. And at that time, it was really hard to find a job. Like it was hard to find summer jobs. And it's not like now. We can always get a job now. Um, but I, so I started cooking in my mother's kitchen and I would cook Lebanese food and it was really made her kitchen really hot. So she said, I can't stand this. Like, and so then I moved to his, I moved my like chef duties on Wednesdays. To, he let me cook in his apartment and um, I would make a, Fatire and uh, what Rish, which is rolled grape leaves, and uh, so I was this like little Newfoundland girl selling Lebanese food at the farmers market, and that was my. I just made a summer job for myself for two summers, and his aunt 
his aunt Vicky would come help me sell it. So it was just sweet. And she was Lebanese, but I did all the cooking and did all the selling. I'd make tabbouleh and hummus and, oh, it was fun. Yeah. So did you learn from his family? Did you, how did you learn Lebanese cooking? Well, his mother had had a cookbook. So I followed those recipes, like she got a family cookbook and uh, he showed me the basics and uh, off I went, you know, it was just fun. (laughs) And I still cook all those meals today. You know, I'm still married to that beautiful man. And tonight we're going to have lentil soup and and uh, it's a Lebanese lentil soup, you know, with spinach in it. So we still cook a lot. And my my children, uh, of course, um, grew up on Lebanese food as well as like fish cakes because I'm from Newfoundland. But <laughs> well, they're very international. <laughs> yeah, in their own way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love the secrets because people, you learn so much about people from the secrets, right? That aren't in all the stories all the time. And it's just so telling of their personality and their character and their drive. I like it when you ask them too. I'm always curious what they have to say. (laughs) You know, I don't know why I started that. I must've heard that somewhere or something and thought that is such a good idea, right? But I can't remember where it was. But this last thing I ask, I know exactly why I ask it. And it's because as writers, you know, I say this in every podcast, but I'm hoping against hope that when I write something that's a thousand words, that there's one inspirational thought in there somewhere in 20 words or less. Right. And it's why I'm such a lover of quotes and greeting cards, because I, when I grow up, and learn how to do what I do really well. I want to be able to write something very profound in 20 words or less. <laughs> so I always ask everybody what their favorite quote is because I think it says pages and pages about who we are and how we feel and what inspires us. So will you share your favorite quote with us? I will. Um, I just... I wrote a book called Meditations for Makers, and it's out. I'm going to send it to you, first of all, because it's full of quotes. So I'll I'll mail you that. Um, That was the the latest book that I wrote. But the quote that I have is right here. It's on my my daughter made it for me. And it's um, it's the one that I went to. And uh, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? And it's from Matthew. And it is it is something that I try to keep in mind, you know, um, every day I try to keep that in mind and uh, it's I, I really thought about you know you really have to think about because I have probably 10 or 15 quotes that sort of come back to me again and again but I think that is one that I try to remind myself of and that I struggle with sometimes you know because um, so that would be mine oh, I love that and you're very gracious to share it and if you don't mind I think I'll pin it up on my inspiration board and yeah, it will re- it's profound and it will always remind me of you right you. And I think that's a nice thing the only disappointment that I have during our podcast from the kitchen table is when our time is over for today it is such an honor for me to be able to create a moment for each of us to be together to share our stories I can promise you and you can trust me No matter how easy these guests make the journey appear, it wasn't. They each started by taking the first step, together and alone, frightened and inspired, ready or not, each one moving ever forward, 
simply doing what they love to do, and that is create. Because we are a community which is based on our support of one another, please remember to leave a review. Leave a review, not only for these magazines, but for each other. It is a small investment of your time and yet an enormous gift to each of our guests that are working so very hard to be the best they can be in their chosen field. If you have any questions or want to know more, please visit womencreate.com. As you know, I am a lover of quotes and to end this chapter of From My Kitchen Table, I want to share my favorite quote with you. And that is, I love each of you and all of you with a thousand hearts. Until our next From My Kitchen Table, stay safe, keep notes, and take lots of pictures. <laughs>